Welcome to the online broadcast. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original internet godfather. Now, what did it take to get that title? 39 felonies, a place on the United States most wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. Of course, I went to prison, and during my time behind the fence, I turned my life around. Today, I work hard to protect individuals and companies against the type of person I used to be. My co-host, Carice Hendrick, well, she's not here today. Turns out she lives in Seattle, and it turns out that Seattle has been hit hard by FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt concerning the coronavirus. Oh, yes. Well, okay. It's not complete fear, uncertainty, and doubt up in Seattle. Seattle is one of the places where there are some infected people and there have been some deaths there. As a result, there's no toilet paper in Seattle. Let that sink in for a second. The entire city of Seattle, there's no toilet paper to be found. Evidently, people think that when, the, when this virus is out there, you know, the one thing we need more than anything is toilet paper. Now, Carice is not here today. I'm not sure why she's not here. I know there's no toilet paper in Seattle. There is a correlation, but I want to be fair. Correlation does not mean causation. Just because there's no toilet paper doesn't mean that that's why Carice isn't here. But I'm just saying, there's no toilet paper. There's no hand sanitizer. That's right. So after you use the restroom and use the toilet paper that you don't have, there's no hand sanitizer there to clean your hands. Evidently, there's no Clorox wipes either. It's chaos. It's chaos. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Carice is not here, so I am soldiering on without her. I will say that I went down and I bought a whole case of toilet paper just so I know that when the time comes, I'm prepared. Let's go on with the show. As you know, we usually start out with the What the Fraud segment. We're not doing that today. Nope. Today, we're doing a new segment. This segment I like to call the Cyber Suck segment. All the news that only a criminal would like. Any other cybersecurity news? Well, we're not going to talk about that. We're only talking about the news that makes criminals happy. First on the list, the Che browser. Carice, the other day, she had a friend of ours. She, the, the friend contacted Carice, and they said, hey, have you heard anything? Have you or Brett heard anything about this Che browser? Our company is being hit willy-nilly at length, free will, with CNP, card not present fraud, stolen credit card orders. Our company is being hit with stolen credit card orders. The fraud's coming through is completely clean. Only when we backtrack do we find out it's this Che browser, this browser extension that plugs into Chrome. Have you guys heard about it? So, Carice, she sends me a text. Have you heard of this? And, of course, my answer was, well, yes. Yes, I have. And what she asked, okay, what do you know about it? And I told her what I knew about it. And then the question was, what can you do about it? 
Well, let's go ahead and talk about that right now. The Che browser is an anti-detect type of browser. So let's backtrack a little bit and tell you what that is and how it comes into being. Criminals, cyber criminals like I used to be, and I'm going to refer to cyber criminals as we in this context because even though I'm no longer a criminal, I still have that criminal mindset. I still think like a criminal. All right. So cyber criminals, we are really good about researching. We know that if we're going to commit a crime and do it successfully, that we need to pull all the data that we can. We need to find out as much information as we possibly can so that we can prepare properly, so that we can go in and steal people's money, information, access, data, cash, those types of things. So criminals are really big about reading indictments to find out how other criminals have operated. They're very good about sharing information, asking questions. As far as I know, criminals are the only people on the planet who read the terms of service on a website. Well, criminals and attorneys, which, I mean, is there a difference? I don't know. I don't really think so sometimes, but that's really it. So criminals are very good about doing research. We are also very good, part of that research is reading white papers. In 2011, in 2011, the white papers that were being read had to do with browser fingerprinting. So the merchants and companies out there, you guys know what browser fingerprinting is. For, the, for our regular listeners, browser fingerprinting. When you go to a website, say you go to Amazon, Amazon captures data about your visit. It captures what's called the browser fingerprint, among other things. The browser fingerprint has about 42 different unique characteristics at what type of browser, what version of Java, um, the location, the device type that's coming in, the resolution, the language, the time, the font, all this other stuff, about 42 different characteristics. And they're unique enough that you can potentially identify one unique user out of millions, okay? So fraudsters started to read the white papers about this. And it was all for the fraudsters that, at that point in time, it was all gloom and doom. The sky is falling, the sky is falling, we're doomed. This thing's gonna go throughout the internet. It's going to destroy our ability to steal money and product from companies. So they were scared to death. They were worried, you know, hey, what happens if I, buy stolen credit card information, go over and try to hit a website like Amazon or Apple or something like that. And my fingerprint, because I'm using a brand new mobile device, my fingerprint doesn't match the browser fingerprint of the actual customer. If it doesn't match, it could raise the fraud score. Things go bad at that point. So that's what that was a lot of the worry. Fraudsters were scared to death of that for a couple of years. Around 2013, two products, two criminal products come on the market that criminals can use. Those products were Anti-Detect and Fraud Fox. Anti-Detect is exactly what it says. Both of them are exactly, are, are Anti-Detect browsers. What they do is, is they, they allow someone to spoof a browser fingerprint print quickly and on the fly. Now you can do this manually, but doing it manually is a headache. If you have a browser that does it for you, it's great. For example, anti-detect, the guy, he's still in business. The website is antidetect.org. He sells that browser from anywhere from $600 up to about $2,500, depending on the version that you want to purchase. 
And it works well. It works very well. Works well enough that he stayed in business. He's got excellent customer service over there. What happens is, is you buy that. And he's actually got a video on YouTube that shows how you can use his browser to commit credit card fraud. So he's he's got the video. He's He places a credit card order. He hits the anti-detect new button. A new browser fingerprint comes into being and he can place another credit card order with another browser fingerprint. He just keeps alternating browser fingerprint. What happens is because of that, when you buy credit card data today or when you buy bank logins or PayPal logins, something like that, a lot of the time you get the browser fingerprint of the actual customer, the card holder or the account holder. You get that browser fingerprint. So if you're using a, a device, a, a web browser like AntiDetect, you can then, you know what the browser fingerprint of the actual victim is supposed to look like. You can go to a website like configshop.cc and you can buy browser fingerprints for $3 a piece. You simply search for the type of browser fingerprint that, that comes as close as it possibly can to the victim's browser fingerprint. You buy that, load it up on anti-detect, go and do your shopping. It increases the odds of the order going through dramatically, okay? Now, here's the thing. Those browsers, FraudFox and AntiDetect, were developed by criminals for criminal purposes. Now, the owner, the person who, who runs AntiDetect, a couple of years ago, he starts trying to market AntiDetect as a privacy-type browser because it is. If you think someone, if, if someone is security or privacy conscious and they don't want websites tracking them, they can use an anti-detect browser and pretty much stop that completely by spoofing all these fingerprints. He failed kind of miserably at that because at the end of the day, it started as a criminal enterprise and it is still a criminal enterprise. That being said, there is a need, there's a want, there's a desire, there's a demand for anti-detect type browsers among privacy-minded people that don't want websites to track them, that don't want websites to know who they are. Enter the professional developers. So today we have a load of legitimate anti-detect type of browsers that are targeted or marketed toward concerned citizens who are trying to protect their privacy, who are trying to keep websites from tracking them. There are a load of these browsers out. One of these browsers is the Che browser. It is developed by professionals, meaning it has a professional budget, meaning it's a team of people that have a huge amount of money to properly develop a, an anti-detect type of browser. It's not some guy in Russia that's doing anti-detect. This is a group of professionals that know exactly what they're doing. It's a team that have a team type of budget and they build a great product. And that product is called the Che Browser. So to give you an idea of what that does, the types of stuff that it spoofs. It's, and we're on the front first page of the Che Browser itself. It, the website is beta.chebrowser, C-H-E-B-R-O-W-S-E-R dot site. That is where you can find this. And on the front page, it says, what data do we substitute? And it gives a list. Navigator, so user agent, language, platform, et cetera. Canvas, API interception, value substitution, fingerprint spoofing, WebGL, API, value substitution, fingerprint spoofing, window, window value substitution, browser plugins, WebRTC, time zone, media devices, geolocation, fonts, 
So list of fonts, fingerprint spoofing again, screen objects, so resolution, number of colors, display orientation, audio context as well. So it spoofs all those things. And it does it well enough that the friend of both me and Carice, his company was experiencing what looked like clean credit card fraud. And they didn't know that it was this Che browser until the fraud has already went through. It's already happened. The criminal is successful at stealing the product. They look back at the order. They look back at the forensics and they see that it's this Che browser. So the question is, is, okay, how do we identify this? The answer is, <laughs> it's complicated. So you're dealing with a browser that is built to not be detected, hence the name anti-detect. So that's the first problem, and you're dealing with a browser that is developed by professionals. So how do you detect? It's extremely, it is extremely difficult. The way you detect anti-detect, the actual anti-detect browser and FraudFox, and it's difficult to do that as well, and that's developed by you know one guy. The way you detect that is, so what happens is, is I can be on my desktop computer and I can use an anti-detect browser and I can spoof the type of device that I'm using or the type of uh, browser that I'm using. So even though I'm on, um, say I'm on my desktop and I'm using Firefox or Chrome, so change plugs into Chrome. So I'm on my desktop, I'm using the Chrome browser. I can make it appear that I'm using Safari. Okay, I can make it appear that I'm using Firefox. I can make it appear that even though I'm on my desktop, that I'm using a mobile device, an Android device, or an iPhone device, an iOS device. I can make it appear like any of this, this stuff that goes on. So it spoofs that, okay? Now, here's the thing. Even though it's spoofing that, my actual device acts like it should. So there are some things, there are some ways that, that my desktop will behave or the, that the browser that I actually use will behave even though I'm spoofing another browser or another device. And that's exactly what you have to start looking for are ways to ping to see if there are other devices that, that, that what's coming through is not a spoof. So is it acting the way it should or is it acting the way that a desktop would act even though it shows that it's a mobile device, all right? Or is it acting the way that Edge browser would act instead of Chrome or vice versa. That is historically, and there may be other ways to determine that, that an anti-detect browser is in play. But as far as I know right now, that is the go-to method to try to determine whether anti-detect is in play. End of the day, this type of browser, these types of privacy anti-detect type browsers are only going to grow in popularity. Criminals, if they can use an off-the-shelf product, if it's a legal product, if they can use it for illegal means, believe you me, they will. I know I used to be one. So this type of tool will continue to be used and will continue to gain popularity among fraudsters and cyber criminals at large. So since we've made everyone's day today and, and told about a tool that criminals love that works extremely well, let's go right on and continue with our cyber suck news. Next article comes from Cointelegraph.com. The article reads, Upholds new debit card lets you pay with Bitcoin, XRP, and gold. Let me read that again because every time I read that, my mouth 
starts to water. So Uphold's new debit card lets you pay with Bitcoin, XRP, and gold. It's a MasterCard branded debit card. Now, I am no longer a criminal. I am not. I have no temptation to break the law whatsoever. My temptation is to stop cybercrime. I want to make sure that I want to do as much damage to that as I can. I want to make sure that I, I actually want to um, try to balance the scales with the damage and the harm that I caused. I'm trying to, um, to, end my, to, to end my existence when I do finally check out. I want people to not say that I was the guy who stole money, but I was the guy who was able to turn it around. So I'm not tempted. But when I read an article like this, when I see a headline like that, I get this burning, this almost sexual thrill, this tingling in my loins of just, oh, I love the idea of that. And here's why. One of the hardest things that criminals can do is actually put cash in pocket. So a lot of criminal, and for anybody who, who might be naive about cryptocurrency, a lot of cryptocurrency activity is criminal activity, drug trafficking financial cybercrime, that kind of stuff. A lot, a lot. Money laundering. People in South, uh, South Korea, they love, they love to store their money and hide it from the government in Bitcoin. People in China, they love, they love to hide money from the government in Bitcoin. They love it. The problem is, is that you could be Bitcoin rich, but cash poor. You can have thousands of Bitcoin, but if you can't change that stuff into cash, what good are you? You may not be able to buy any, any toilet paper, even if there were some in Seattle. So you, now you've got a debit card that links to your Bitcoin wallet, that links to some commodities, that links to traditional financial services, institutions. That, that is a game changer for money launderers. So I read an article like this that says, you know, hey, if you've got it linked to your Bitcoin account, you can start withdrawing U.S. currency in Bitcoin or start buying things. I'm like, oh my, oh my man, that is a great tool for money laundering right there. Now, I don't know how Uphold is. Perhaps Uphold has outstanding security. They very well might. I don't know, but I do know one thing for sure. I know that criminals out there upon reading about this product will go to the ends of the earth to try to compromise it, to try to get many of these debit cards and to try to link their Bitcoin accounts to these debit cards so they can launder the money out and actually put cash in pocket. Moving right along, the next article comes from cleveland.com. And I guess here, right here, is a good time to come up with our disclaimer, kind of on the fly. So let's go ahead and do that. The disclaimer of this show, and I'll make sure I've got it on all future shows on online broadcast and over on anglerfish.com, the podcast over there as well. Here's a disclaimer. The opinions and viewpoints expressed by one Brett Johnson are solely that of Brett Johnson and no other host, co-host, or special guest of the online broadcast or the Anglerfish podcast. There we go. That was the disclaimer. I figured that I better get that disclaimer out because sometimes Bretty has been known to go down that rabbit hole and offer opinions. This, my friends, is one of those times. A news article appeared on cleveland.com. 
The news article, the headline reads, unexpected cash app debit card could be a sophisticated scam. Money matters. Okay, so for those who are aware of my blog and everything, I have written about cash app before. Mary Breen is currently sitting in prison. I don't know how many felonies she has over top of her head, but she was defrauding cash app. And I spoke about that and talked about an exploit of how she showed me how she was exploiting cash app. The problem is, is that that has nothing to do with this story at all, except maybe talking about their over, some of their overall security over there. The, the problem right now is that people are receiving cash app debit cards that they did not order. That's what this article is about. Now, the writer of this article, and he goes on for at least 15, 1800 words before he finally gets to the point. I mean, he, he says, all these people are getting these cash app debit cards. They didn't order the debit card. And it could be, you know, what's the scam? It could be because no one's trying to steal the debit card out of the mail or off the porch. No one's trying to divert shipments someplace else. So the writers like, the, the reporters like, I don't know what's going on. The people, they're not ordering the debit card. I don't understand what the fraud could be until finally toward the end of the article, he gets to the point, well, you know, it could be, it could be something to do with money laundering. At which point I said to myself, actually, I said it out loud. I read that and I was like, no shit, money laundering. Good one there, Sherlock. Of course it's money laundering. Of course, the question is, is okay, so how is it money laundering if the, if the criminal who is opening this account is not or does not have the card? How is that, how is that possible, Brad? So the reporter doesn't really go into that. He mentions some of these, these aspects that I'm about to talk about, but not a whole lot of them. Let's think about it from the victim's point of view. Someone opens up their mailbox. In their mailbox, they've got this cash app debit card that they did not order, okay? So nine times out of 10, and this is what I know as a criminal, because I have done this, I have relied on people acting like this. I know this is how this works, okay? So someone goes out to the mailbox, they open the mailbox, they get the mail out, within the mail is one of these cash app debit cards, which they did not order. First thought out of the victim's head, I didn't order this. What is this, a credit card offer? What is this? I didn't order this. Why is this company sending me this? Nine times out of 10, nine times out of 10, that person, that victim, will simply throw the card away. I didn't order it. It's some offer, some sort of weird offer. I don't need that crap. They're going to toss the card in the garbage, not think anything about it because they are not aware of what's actually going on, of the potential for money laundering, that they are now a victim of identity theft. All right. They're not aware of that. So they're just going to toss the card nine times out of 10. So that 10%, that one out of 10, they may be more security aware. They may be more in tune that, hey, this may be identity theft. So what are they going to do? They're going to try to call Cash App. They're going to look for the number, maybe on the back of the card, maybe on the piece of mail that's sent to them. Maybe they'll get on Google and try to Google Cash Apps. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll go to the website. Now, Cash App does have a phone number. The problem is, is they don't have any customer service. So you call and there's a message there that says, hey, um, we don't do live calls. It's very, very rare that we do that. Uh, we would like you to contact us via our email system. So that's the message that plays. 
So I, you know, I have a problem with that. So I, the, the victim, that 10%, they call and get that message. Now, how many out of that 10% are going to take the time to email Cash App? The answer is not many. Let's, let's be high about it. Let's say four, four out of 10 of that 10% will in turn email Cash App. So that's a problem in and of itself that Cash App doesn't have any way to contact them to tell them that, hey, fraud's occurring. Okay, they want you to email them. So I went and I started Googling feedback on Cash App about this reviews, uh, you know, reading reviews, people's remarks and everything else. Turns out that, yeah, Cash App wants you to email them, but guess what? They are, and this was more than just one website, more than just one person that talked about this, but it's, you can Google this yourself. There are tons of people that talk about, hey, Cash App doesn't, they're not very good about responding to emails. They sometimes take weeks if you hear from them at all. So, that four out of the 10% that decides to email Cash App, the chances of them getting any form of a timely response, pretty low, pretty low. Until finally, and here's the first lesson of cybercrime. I learned this on my first, first cybercrime lesson. That lesson is if you delay a victim long enough, if you just keep putting them off, a lot of them they get so exasperated, they throw their hands up in the air, walk away, and you never hear from them again. Guess what? that rule applies to what we're seeing right here. They're not able to contact by phone. Email is extremely slow. The victim gets so exasperated after a while, they walk away and you don't hear from them again. Criminals know that. That is the first lesson of cybercrime right there. Criminals know that. So I know that. So what I know is as a criminal, the person gets the card. Nine, nine out of 10 of them will throw the card away, not think twice about it. 10% of them will try to contact Cash App, can't get them on the phone. Maybe four out of those, four out of that 10%, four people out of the 10% will go ahead and try to, at that point, hey, I'll try to email. Then they don't get a response to email or the response sometimes takes weeks. I know that as a criminal. I know that, hey, this is working in my favor. So what I expect is happening and this is all supposition, but it's supposition based on my experience and expertise. So he orders that Cash App debit card to the victim's address, victim throws the card away, then what happens? At some point, he's got some way of getting that Cash App debit card delivered to an alternate address. Either he can go to the website itself and request, since the initial card was sent out to the actual billing address or the victim's address, he may be able to request a replacement card sent to an alternate address. Or perhaps, perhaps when he emails customer service, because it's not a complaint, it's a request for a replacement card, perhaps that goes to someone who is timely, knowing that, hey, this is, this is money for us. This is not just a complaint that we need to handle. This is money. So maybe at that point, they respond in a more timely manner and will issue a replacement debit card sent to an alternate address, which then the criminal has and can use. Regardless, what's going on is the criminal has access to that account created with that cash app debit card, that prepaid debit card that's being sent out. And he's laundering money through that, okay? The problems here, of course, begin with the company. And here's the thing, I'm not just hammering on cash app. There are other companies out there who do not, who do not have 
customer service numbers. They do not have the ability for someone to call in and talk to a living human. PayPal was notorious for that when PayPal first started. They would hide the phone numbers from you and everything else. That kind of stuff is still going on today. Now, there's, there, there is an argument, I guess, that that, that that should happen. The argument, of course, is that, hey, you know, if they can't get a hold of someone, we don't have to worry about call center fraud. It's actually a security feature. And, you know, for an optimist like myself, and I am that eternal optimist, I see the donut. I don't see the hole. I see the glass half full, not half empty. For an optimist like myself, I might say, you know, that, I guess, in some warped, bizarro world, makes sense. But for someone apathetic, for someone who kind of looks at things and goes, you know, maybe, maybe. It's just you guys trying to save money. Maybe you guys don't really care that much. My advice, my advice, and it's not just because of this, this debit card. Turns out that, so what do you do? You're looking for a company's phone number. It's not on the back of a card maybe, or maybe there's a number on the back of the card that just goes to recording. Diligent people like myself might get on Google and Google a phone number for Cash App or whatever company doesn't have a live operator on the end of the line. How do I speak to a living person? So you can do that. And I was reading about that via Google and a few articles about that as well. It turns out that a few people who Googled Cash App phone numbers, they would get a Cash App phone number. And then they would call and they would talk to a living human being. Of course, that living human being was not part of Cash App at all. And of course, that phone number was not a legitimate Cash App number. It was a phone number associated with a scammer who would then take your credentials, try to get you to wire them money, everything else like that. Because, you know, since no real phone numbers are posted for Cash App to speak to a living person, fraudsters decided to take it upon themselves, put some phone numbers out there and see who would respond. And it turns out some people respond. Some people or enough people respond that when you call Cash App's actual recording number, that there's a warning on there saying, hey, now, uh, you know, if you call any other number that's associated or that says it's Cash App and you speak to a living person, it's not us because, you know, we, we do things through email. We don't talk. Living people never talk to you. So yeah, that's an issue. And, and here, Square owns Cash App. So you know, some enterprising individuals may decide to call Square to try to get some, some answers via Cash App. Square refuses to answer those calls. And they say, oh, you know, that's Cash App. That's not us. We're Square. Yeah, we've got living people, but Cash App, they don't. End of the day, you know, you're, 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 you're faced with something like this. You get one of these debit cards, whether it comes from Cash App or some other company, or you get something that you did not order. Do not ignore it. Do not ignore it because the chances of you being a victim of identity theft, pretty high at that point. The chances of your name being associated with money laundering, criminal activity, pretty high at that point. The shame of it is that we get companies like this that it becomes extremely difficult for the victim to report to the company that this is going on. So if you do receive these cards, what I would advise you to do is report it to ic3.gov. That's the Internet Criminal Complaint Center. Also report it to your local FBI field office. Let them know what's going on. That way you're at least on the books that this has happened. That way if a criminal does, and you do try to notify the company, do send out the email even though that company, the debit card provider, may not respond to it. You still are on record that you tried to notify them. Um, 
that way you're covered if money laundering does take place under your name. If this identity theft does happen, if the criminal actually commits other crimes using your personal identifying information, just always be aware and never give up, never give up on that. Okay. So we're going to move right along to the meat of tonight's story. Okay. And the meat is phone porting, SIM swaps. I was reading this article the other day and the article said that our most important computing device is also our most vulnerable computing device. And what we're talking about, of course, is the smartphone, these cell phones that everyone carries around today. I mean, hell, I can't live without mine. I carry mine religiously. I check it hundreds of times a day and we do everything on it. It is our most important computing device. We do our banking. We do our email. We share our deepest secrets. All of our personal information is on our cell phone. If we lose our cell phone, we go crazy. We are scared to death. We've lost it at an airport or left it sitting at a mall or a restaurant. Where is our phone? Oh my God, what's going to happen? It is extremely vulnerable. It is extremely vulnerable to attacks. One of the easiest attacks that can happen is the SIM swap or the, or the phone porting. And there is a difference between the two. A SIM swap, and, and we're going to walk through. So up to a point, it's almost exactly the same. And, and what I mean by that is a criminal will find a victim or target a victim. That criminal will then pull all the information he possibly can on that victim. He'll pull background checks, the credit report, uh, maybe a TLO lookup, something like that, this, this in-depth background lookup. He may spearfish the victim in order to get specific credentials that the, only the victim has or specific answers to questions that only that victim has. Spearfishing is about 86% successful. So all I need to do is pull up enough information about you, craft an email specifically tailored for that information, send it out. The chances of you clicking on that link or answering the questions that I've, that I've posed to you pretty high at that point, about 86% effective. Okay. So I've got all the information that I need. Now I can either do a SIM swap or a phone port. A SIM swap is exactly that. I will either walk into the phone service provider and request a new SIM card, tell them I've destroyed or lost the SIM card, whatever that is. I'll, I'll request a replacement SIM card or I'll get them to mail me a replacement SIM card that I can then pick up and put in a phone and then take over that victim's phone. That's a SIM swap. Typically takes place throughout that one phone service provider. Okay. A phone port is different. A phone port would be me calling up Verizon and saying, hey, I would pretend to be you. I would say, hey, you know, I've changed phone service providers. I'm over at T-Mobile now. Can you just port my number over there? And they'll ask a set number of questions, a security password, a PIN, something like that. Once I answer that correctly, what will happen is, is that the phone that is in your pocket, that phone will be shut down. And that phone number will be transferred to a prepaid device that I've got in my pocket. So now I control your phone number and you don't know anything about it until you notice you're not getting any calls or anything like that. Meanwhile, what I'm doing with either a SIM swap or a phone port, what I'm doing with that is I'm changing your 
password on your email. I'm getting all those two-factor authentication SMSs that are sent over. I'm taking over your bank account. I'm wiring money out of your bank account. I'm stealing your cryptocurrency. I'm using your credit cards at will. I'm doing all this stuff because at the end of the day, the security device of choice for a lot of institutions is the phone. If I control the phone, I control the account. I have you and there is nothing you can do about it because it's going to take you time to fix that. So I can milk out all the money I can in the time that it takes you to fix the problem that I've caused you. Okay. And here, the added benefit, there's a lot of insiders. There's a lot of people that work at these cell phone stores that I only have to pay, you know, so much per device or a monthly fee and they will help me port phone numbers or do SIM swaps. And here's the thing that is not uncommon. That insider fraud like that, that is not uncommon. There's a lot more of that going on than what we actually need. At the end of the day, SIM swaps and phone porting, extremely effective, extremely effective. There was an article re written re recently. Uh, it appears on Digital Trends. It's by Kyle Wiggers. The name of the article is How to Stop SIM Fraudsters from Draining Your Bank Account. Wow, I read that headline. I'm like, shit, I need to know that. So I read this entire article. I read this entire article. And it talks, you know, it, he gives a section toward the end of signs of SIM swap fraud. He talks about, you know, it's tough to detect SIM card fraud before it happens. Most victims discover they've been compromised when they try to place a call or text and they can't. So that's some of the signs that that may have happened. It talks about how some of the banks are working and trying to consider looking at behavioral changes or behavioral analysis to combat SIM fraud. Doesn't really help much about uh, on the consumer level. Then he gets down to the section that is the title of the article, How to Prevent SIM Swap Fraud. And he mentions the major carriers in the United States, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon. Okay, so I was extremely excited to read how he is going, how he advises or how these companies advise on how to stop phone porting or SIM swaps. We're going to go through what he says. The first is AT&T. AT, you noticed I sighed there because, you know, when I read it, I was like, oh my God, we're dead. We're completely dead. The first is AT&T. AT&T has extra security, a feature that requires you to provide a passcode for any online or phone interactions with an AT&T customer rep. You can turn it on by logging into AT&T's web dashboard or through the app itself. Sprint asks customers to set a PIN and have security questions when they establish a service. T-Mobile lets subscribers create a password, which they will then require when you contact T-Mobile. Verizon allows customers to set an account PIN, which they can then do and edit their profile and their online account. Calling customer service, you must have the PIN or go to the Verizon store, you must have the PIN. All four of these major carriers in the United States still rely on this thing called KBA, knowledge-based authentication, passphrases, passwords, pins. All of that is KBA. That is information that you tell the customer service agent, then the customer service agent gives you free reign into the account. KBA, knowledge-based authentication. Here's a problem with that. I mentioned earlier that spear phishing is about 86% successful. The only thing I need to do is craft an email that looks like it comes from AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, or Verizon, or send out a text message. And we're seeing that right now. 
saying up, we need you to update your account. The text message looks like it comes from one of these major phone carriers. You click on it, it takes you to a website that looks like it's from one of these major phone carriers and they ask you for your PIN, your passcode, your passphrase, your password, that KBA, that knowledge-based answer. They ask you for that. It's about 86% successful. You give that credential up. Fraudster is then able to commit SIM swap or phone porting at that point. If that is the only thing, if that is the only thing that stops, that can stop phone porting and SIM swaps, we are dead. It is over, game over at that point. That cannot be the only, the only answer. Fortunately, there are other answers. There are. I mean, there are uh, banks can start looking or phone companies can start looking at, especially phone porting, was there, was there a request for a SIM replacement? Was there, um, did the phone number be, was it ported to another carrier? That's the kind of stuff that you can look at that, that can actually be determined, but it can't be determined at the consumer level, right? So it's up to the, it's up to the bank. It's up to the phone carrier, the, the merchant to determine this kind of stuff. It's a regulation as well. And, and here's the thing. I am not doing a solo episode today. Carice Hendrick is not with me, but we are honored to have David. David is not David's real name. It's a nom de plume, a pseudonym, a fake name. David is an extremely competent. I would say he's beyond competent when it comes to cybercrime. He is a financial professional. He is not a criminal. He has never been a criminal, but he is well-versed in criminal activity. He is well-versed in the demographics of cybercrime in understanding the mindset and understanding how these crimes work, how they operate. He is extremely well-versed in that, and we are honored to have him on the broadcast today. So we're going to talk with David about some SIM swaps, about some phone ports, about some cybercrime in general. Hope you enjoy the show. We are honored to have, quote, unquote, David, a financial professional, coming in to talk to us about phone porting, SIM swapping, all that other stuff. Now, as you may have guessed, David is not really David's real name, but David is a consummate professional. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He is well-versed in everything we're about to talk about. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me on. It, it is so, my honor. It is completely my honor. So if you, so if you would like to tell the audience some of your background, expertise, stuff like that, without giving away who you are, we'd yeah, appreciate no, that's it. Fine. I mean, I suppose most of it is more hobby-based than anything. Um, back in the early 2000s, I was a bit of a script kiddie um, and working on cracking programs and kind of like basic kind of DDoS um botnets etc but i was very low level but i was more involved in the kind of the social aspects of the uh, the, the the forums like the kind of hierarchies of beings and who was doing what etc sure. and so that's that kind of naturally stems through um i suppose through life you could say so to do with sim swaps for example um it's only recently that it's became such a big deal but it's been a big deal for a long time but it's only now that because it's it's elevated again to that exposure on the dark net where it's seen as the, the go-to flip and switch, 
search solution for getting into bank accounts or other financial records now. Yeah, it's, uh, they've, they've got a lot to handle, especially with the social engineering side, because it's very similar to the, um, the kind of fraud techniques used in, um, well, just kind of general phishing, really. No, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and while you refer to yourself as a script kitty, I have to give you more credit than that. I mean, you, you're talking about using bots, and I, I agree. So, so a lot of that stuff is off the shelf. But let's be honest. A lot of these cyber criminals that are out there, and you, you were never one, but a lot of these actual cyber criminals that are out there, they don't know how to use bots. Even if it is off the shelf, they don't know how to do stuff like that. So you were well advanced past just that, that regular type of script kitty type mentality that a lot of people you know, kind of have online. Um, you're much more advanced than that and, and you give yourself credit. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. You make a, an interesting point about how it, how siloed it is because that's the, that's the inefficiency of the, the, the fraud kind of business landscape at the moment is the fact that you have pockets of very like large successes or hits such as, I don't know, with, um, not PayPal, WorldPay, for example, or whatever it is. One of the PayPal transfer kind of gateway systems. Stripe right. is still a popular one, for example. But um, it's it's how people utilize what quality of goods they get and source and then the network that's kind of built around that. So if you know someone who's good at actually getting you good fools or, or good like legitimate like card details or proxies, et cetera, you, you build that in a kind of like, hardened network which you share with only a few which you, typically you see turns out to be the admins of the sites that's exactly <laughs> you're exactly right that typically tends to be the admins of the sites and i was i was no different when i was running shadow crew and counterfeit library that that still holds true today on that um you know you, you kind of bring up a kind of an interesting topic and you know we're going to talk, talk about phone porting and sim swaps but you're, you're on the dark web. You, do you do some monitoring on there, just some hobby-based viewing and stuff still today or not? Well, when something's not, you know, being DDoSed, yeah. But um, <laughs> I've, I've kind of taken a step back for the last kind of, kind of month or so. Right. But I've been seeing more cliche kind of attacks and breaches in the general news, which gather far more attention than they probably deserve. And it makes me feel that mainstream media is just clinging to a, another fear campaign again. People I would just agree. aren't educated properly. No, because this agree. stuff is the, the thing is this stuff is not hard to do. That's the scary thing about it. It's not hard to do, but it's 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 being able to have the discipline to do it and that actual mentality as well, which is, you know, I don't know. You see I mean, you're right, um... pockets or groups of individuals. Yeah, you're so absolutely your, right. Your phone porting or SIM swap example, a perfect one with that is um, uh, money, uh, money Mules. When they do a SIM swap transfer, um, there are certain areas or used to be certain areas of London where there were usually minority uh, gangs um, who would approach younger minority women, you know, saying, you know, can we put this through your account? Can we swap your phone over, etc." And you see that kind of social circle work again, again, in those silos, as mentioned, under the kind of phone porting example. Right, right. Uh, you know, when, uh, and you're right, this phone porting is, and the SIM swaps, they've been around for, for years. We're seeing that resurgence 
especially mentioned in the media. You know, Forbes has an article out that, that launched last week talking about SIM swaps and phone porting, things like that. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, when I, when it started to really gain ground again, was I noticed about two years ago, Nathaniel Popper, he's a New York Times writer. He, he wrote an article about phone porting taking place on hijacking Coinbase accounts. And someone had stolen, I guess, about 1.8 million in someone else's uh, cryptocurrency. So uh, that's where I noticed it. And, and what I keep noticing over and over again is that it's almost like a trickle down theory for cybercrime. You know, the, the, you get these, these types of techniques and phone porting, SIM swaps, that's, that is, as you pointed out, it is not sophisticated. This is really easy stuff to do. But it starts at these upper tier type levels, you know, where you're hijacking Coinbase accounts. And it bleeds down as, as that type of conversation works its way throughout the entire spectrum of that cybercrime community. So now we've got SIM swaps and phone porting taking place at the credit card takeover levels. Um, and it, it continues at that. And I, again, I don't know why the media is so big about saying this is a new type of crime or this is something that... Uh, that is very sophisticated, you know, committed by these hackers and hoodies working in the shadows that are untouchable, but it, it's not sophisticated whatsoever. It's not. And it's usually people from a poorer background. That's why there are so many scams on these actual darknet websites themselves, because what it does is it weeds out the desperate and the needy and those with the true intent and, you know, mental capacity to actually start to begin or even forge these crimes. And that's what I find most fascinating, to be honest with you, is these individuals, because you notice clear patterns with, um, in terms of speech on, on forums. So whether it be grammar, punctuation, misspelling, etc., long periods of time away from, you know, forums or whatever that kind of stuff may be, just telltale signs. I find it quite interesting. You know, that, that's actually pretty inter interesting that you mentioned that, 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 that type of demographic, because I'm looking back at, at my days with shadow crew and not only them, but, um, you know, the silk road people, the evolution, um, alpha Bay people. And you're absolutely right. Most of the people that are on there are not really highly educated, at, at least, you know, structurally educated. And a lot of the times it's, it's these types of scams, whether they be the scams on the marketplaces themselves mm. or the scams that the, the criminals are perpetrating against everyday people. But it's, it's mm. you're absolutely right. It's the, uh, the demographic there is for a, a, a lower class, poor individual that's doing that. Mo the reason I bring it up, yeah, the reason I bring it up, because like I know I diverted off your original question to do with it, was sure. because you have to look at it back from like when sim swapping first like began and it was... It, it was so easy. And what you're seeing now is in, in the trend of trying to be able to be a successful fraudster, the, the technical capability is having to go up and up. And that's only making and fueling it when you see these big high tier profile hits in, in the mainstream media as such. Right. Because the glorification of, you know, kind of like crypto and everything else around it. You know, it's, it's, it's always a temptation as such. You're and right. Like, you're right. The thing with SIM swapping as well is like the fact that you can spoof the number that you're, you know, calling against. I don't know how you can screen against that from a more technical level. I'm sure you can as an enterprise, but as an, as a, as a recipient, a, a client or a customer receiving a spoof number, 
you know, which leads to a SIM swap or a phone port situation is quite interesting. No, you're right. And, you know, they're, I'm working with a telecommunication company now that has a product that it shows a, it shows a likely scam call coming through. So a, a regular citizen can see that. But, um, you know, that, I, I don't know how long-lived that type of uh, technology is for defeating those types of calls. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it strikes me because you're absolutely right what you're saying. You know, we're, we're looking at this increase or at least this awareness of SIM swaps and phone porting because it is so easy, because the entry level for a criminal to do that is so low education-wise that anyone can engage in it. You don't have to have a lot of money or really any money to, to do a SIM swap or a phone port. I mean, and, and just so everyone knows, and I explained that before I, I brought you on, but, you know, phone porting is when you switch the phone number to a different service provider. You have their phone shut down at Verizon. You've got a prepaid AT&T phone and you have the number just ported over to that prepaid device. Uh, SIM swap is more, more likely than not. You're going in and you're actually having their phone shut down, the actual victim's phone shut down and you walk in to Verizon and, and you get another SIM card put in a phone that you control. You come in with a fake ID. A lot of the times you have an insider that may be working at the phone store itself that helps out with that type of fraud. That's a common one. Um, that, that's very common. There was a, a gentleman last week, there was an article about a Verizon employee that had been helping doing SIM swaps. Uh, matter of fact, the guy who lost uh, $1.8 in cryptocurrency, he's got a lawsuit pending now, I think against, um, it's, it's either against Verizon or, or AT&T. I think it's AT&T that um, he blames them because they had an insider that was helping out with these damn sims. Yeah, I, I was about to say, isn't that the hero who paid the guy to input the Trojan or backdoor so then he had full access to just control? That's the one. <laughs> I uh, remember reading about that guy. Yeah, he yeah was, that's, um, that's the one. You got to love that. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, what do, what do you do you think it's, I, I already know the answer. How much insider activity do you think is going on when we're talking about sim swapping? Uh, probably more than there should be. I don't think it's probably high because the thing is, is like, I've said this to you before in conversation, fraud is an industry and like no one gives a shit about like a grand or like two grand or like 500 sure, or whatever. These small amounts that are coming through, even though they're in, you know, when you add up the total picture, it's larger amounts. You're thinking about it as like a, a healthcare system as such. Right. Or like an IT support system, there's usually three levels of care or, you know, protection. But if it's just low level within like the scope of like a thousand pounds, it just never gets, there's, there's no, there's no incentive for it to be investigated or stopped unless you start to like mandate it and audit it and have some kind of form of identification or token attributed to your, um, your device. I think, sure. The software providers could do a lot more as well. Like a Apple are pretty good with their um, their Apple Lock feature, but yeah, again, you're right. You're right. And it then, should be like a two-factor authentication from the start. You're right, and I'll tell you what. What actually got me on this topic this morning 
because because Carice could not be with us to record today. But what got me on this topic this morning is I was I was going through Flipboard. It's this I don't know if you use Flipboard or not. It's this app that uh, puts all these news articles together. You can pick the subjects that you like. And you just use your thumb and you flip through it until you find an article you like, and you can either read the headline, which is usually what I do, or you can read the story if you want. But the the headline read something. It was something about how our weakest computer device, how our most important computer device is also our weakest. And yes. of course it had the picture of the smartphone there. <laughs> and yeah. it got my attention enough that I clicked on it. And of course it's talking about SIM swaps and, and all these other techniques that can be used to compromise the phone. And I was like, you know, we definitely need to be talking about and raising awareness of the mobile devices, how they are not, they're not the very is interesting. It's very, them. it's very, yeah. like the amount of data you have on there. Now, if you think about it, like you look at the alleged allegations of the Experian hack and the right. data that was retrieved from that, from China, for example, and there's, there's so much biometric data in there as well. And with the way that technology is progressing, it's very interesting because your phone has all of that and more. Exactly. And so, and it has, it has probably, well, not the weakest security because IP cameras are, are terribly worse. This is where I was going to say like the biggest danger technology wise, it depends how you look at it from a macro perspective, weaponized IP or internet of things devices that can just botnet the shit out of everything are worse than bad security on your phone. If you're an idiot. So, so let me ask you, opinion. and I, I agree with you, it is, it is certainly a worse area. That being said, though, how many, because, you know, we've got like, you know, we had a marketplace, one of these dark web marketplaces shut down about six months ago. They had 1.15 million registered accounts on there. Most of those are drug buyers, of course, but there's a fair number of fraudsters there. How many, how, how, how likely do you think it is, it's going to be that, we have an increase in education among the general fraudsters where they're able to use bots, where they're able to, you know, take over IOT devices. What, to make like actual cybercrime syndicates, sure. like military sized ones as such. Sure. Well, they still kind of exist if you want to count anonymous as such. I mean, that's a really pathetic example. Right. But I mean, most of them are claimed to be state sponsored, but they're not really, are they? Because none of them can technically be it's just a term we use exactly so all of them are pretty respectable in what they do but um to be honest with you it would it would require it would require a terrorist organization i think what do you think like that you think happen. we're going to start seeing that type of stuff or not um like true like true on true cyber terrorism like yeah. with no physical activity not for a long time yeah, that's kind of what I think too. I think I think it's coming, but uh, getting their act together on that is is something. All this cashless payment stuff just makes it worse, though. Yes, <laughs> I agree. But what about uh, what about the normal fraudsters that are out there? You think that, uh, and I, I, you know, I've noticed over the years that more and more fraudsters have gotten better educated. I won't say they're they're fantastically educated on the dynamics of cybercrime, but they've become better educated. I, I think a lot of that is due to the types of information sharing that we get out there. You know, we've got, we've got these little bullshit tutorials that are sold. We've got some guys that offer classes that some of the classes are pretty good, but uh, more often than not, what I continue to see is, you know, we, we take a forum type structure, whether it be dread or something like that on the dark web. And you, you have people that actually sit down and they share 
pretty good tidbits of information on how to educate criminals to be better criminals in their crafts. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are either more skeptical or critical or um, I think they're a lot more tight-lipped now ever since evolution and alphabet. Yeah, you're right. People have stopped sharing because before it was a free-for-all. Like you could buy like fucking like vouchers (laughs) to go like to your local Walmart and like get your groceries, like no problems. Do you know what I mean? I do. That was, uh, what was his name? Golden Lotus was that guy's name that sold the, uh, the vouchers and the coupons to, uh, to go shopping. You could, uh, you could buy a Golden Lotus coupon pack here in the United States and the pack would run you, I think he was selling those for $80 a pack. And you could mm. just print off your own coupons, go to Walmart and buy, you know, $600 worth of groceries or products for $50. Mm. And uh, I think he ended, he was arrested, of course. He ended up, he was arrested at the end of Evolution and somewhere through uh, Alpha Bay. And I think he got three years out of that in federal prison was what happened. But um, They again, should be using these people better though. But they like should. I, said, I, don't, I don't think <laughs> fraud's going away. I don't think there's any reason for it to go away. It's just a burn ratio. Like you're on about sophisticated fraudsters. Yeah, but now the average guy can be a, a fraudster. You find a bank card on the floor that's got a wireless, you know, payment system attached to it. You've right. got 200, you've got 200 pounds access there straight away. So there's that, t- there's that temptation there. So what you've, what you've got essentially is you've got financial institutions factoring in for human greed and right. fraud. Right. Do you think that it's, because you, you'd mentioned this before about the dollar amounts, and, I, and I'm big on that too, and, and I think you're absolutely right. Unless, you know, you're, you're still in $1,000, $2,000 or pounds, no one cares. Now, law enforcement is not going to really take the, the resources and try to hunt this individual down until mm. the dollar amount gets high enough. Do you think that we're ever going to see a, a point where law enforcement potentially has the resources to go after these people who are stealing these low dollar amounts like that? Um, yes, but only if they completely changed the way it was viewed like in society, right. like you, <laughs> It sounds stupid, but like you could do it like a dog, the bounty hunter type thing (laughs) where it's like a freelance, like you're vetted or whatever. And then you, you, you go through cases and like, if, if successful, you know, you get a bounty based on the, the amount pulled back. You know, know, I could do that. I could, I could grow the mullet out. I'd be kind of bald on top, but I could grow the mullet. I could, I could wear the, 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 the denim Levi vest with the cut off shoulders. But I mean, I could do that. That's that frauds, good fraudsters learn by learning techniques of others. And the only way you can do that is through a fucking computer screen that requires you to read. It requires you to analyze that information to intake that in however it's meant to be an experiment with those instructions given. And if you can articulate that across into something that's successful like that, when you're unpicking someone else's crime, you can, it's, it's so stereotypical. You can step into their shoes as such. You can think their way as such, or you can, you take an interest in it. So it it becomes a hobby as well as a, uh, as a, a career choice as such, but through the general police and the way it's kind of handled and the generic process, I don't think you've got a chance in hell. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. The fraud stuff they deal with is like awesome, like cartel level shit, but yeah. No, I think you're right. I fun middle stuff right. gets missed. 
actually, this is a much better conversation than just to, than just SIM swaps and, and phone porting. So my question is, is that, you know, we, we've got, as you've pointed out, a lot of these crimes, and, and I'm big on talking about that as well, they're not sophisticated. They're not hard to pull off. Phone porting, SIM swaps especially, are extremely easy. They're very easy crimes. The entry level to successfully commit those types of crimes is extremely low. The victims that are out there, what do you think needs to be done? And I, I know the, the usual catchphrase is, oh, we have to raise awareness. But what needs to be done so that victims can protect themselves against these types of crimes? Like any good financial organized, well, like system, there should be a spreaded pool risk. So the owner should be put on to the telecoms companies to mandate a two-form factual authentication. It's as simple as that. So what, how would that two-form work? I don't know. It could be a secondary number, an email, or... Um, it could be in in store, et cetera. That's a good idea. So my question is, is why aren't we seeing, because, you know, a few of the tests that have been out recently and media has been doing that. I mean, we've known as cybersecurity professionals for a while that it's been easy to do this, but now we're seeing the media, you know, they'll have someone walk in and show everyone how easy it is to port a phone. So, so why do you, why don't you think that these phone providers are not implementing two factor? Because they're not getting fined and they're not being held accountable because the amounts are so small that they're getting eaten up by the amount they set aside for this type of shit. Right. Right. <laughs> it's as simple and as that. It is. And I agree. I agree with you. And, and, you know, here's the thing. We're, you, can, you can raise the awareness of individuals, the victims, as much as you want to. I mean, you and I both know, okay, we, we know exactly what phones, SIM swaps are and phone porting. We're aware of that. But that still doesn't protect us from having it done at the SIM swap level. Someone walks in with my fake driver's license into the Verizon store. And once my phone shut down, they pulled up my information through whatever channels they want to, TLO or Delve Point or whatever channels you guys have got over there. It's pretty easy to do that, and me not really know anything about it. So I is think that, is that right. still a big thing in America? Because like, oh, it's huge. I know, I know <laughs> that fr like fraudsters in in Europe will proactively go out of their way to remote into American like servers, RDPs, and all that bullshit to commit fraud in America because it's easier than committing fraud in the UK. I, I didn't tell you think, this. I didn't think that was the same thing with SIM swaps and phone ports too. Because oh, it's crazy. SIM swaps and phone <laughs> ports isn't a, the, a big deal in the UK anymore. I mean, it still happens, but like people don't have the balls to go into these shops anymore like that because you're going in for big amounts. Yep. And I will tell you, I will tell you this, and I've, I've said this for years: the UK, lots of the EU, you guys are about five years ahead of the United States as far as doing things properly. So we are still back in that little stone age where this stuff is still rampant. Absolutely, it's still rampant. You get, and, and you're right about the demographic of people. It's not, it's not the fraudsters who are stealing massive amounts of money who walk their asses into a phone shop with a fake ID and try to get a SIM swap done. It's not. They, they'll have some mule do it, uh, or it'll be someone who, who, is, who doesn't do very well as far as stealing money, and they're getting kind of desperate, they're, they're poor, and they're trying to get this done like that. It's 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 more the desperate, the the, the lower level criminals who are doing. You this. you will always need that interconnectivity, which plays into like the socioeconomic factor. I think 
Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. But also, again, based on socioeconomic factor, that is scalable. I mean, yeah. Ponzi streams and the, I mean, those events, um, what was it? That fire festival that was supposed to happen. It was <laughs> like stuff like that, that, that happens. I mean, that's, that's a genuine piece of like fraud. You know, I, and I got to tell you, I am absolutely fascinated. I am fascinated by that whole fire festival story. And, and, you know, as, as horrible as that is, I mean, I, I watched the, I've watched a couple of the documentaries and I keep just picturing the, pe the people's faces when they walk off the plane and they get to the site and they've got a few tents there and then they get their meals and they've got, you know, half a bologna sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> I'm was, like, oh my God. I saw it retrospectively. The other one was um, Tumblr, but that's more of a meme thing. We won't right. go into that. That's that. That wasn't fraud. That was more meme anyway. So um, yeah, I mean, I worked in the phone industry for a bit. I mean, the, the typical fraud that you saw happen was you could, you could essentially, if you passed a credit check, which was answer a set of questions correctly, you know, from one to five sure. based on particular elements of your credit history, you wouldn't be able to proceed without um, identification as such or further ID, either one. It was easier anyway. And um, what you would always see was the telltale sign was they would always let the first sale go through for the contract. Right. Right. And then they would ask for another one straight after and try and do it that way. Gotcha. That was uh, quite a common one, but I don't know if that still happens. As you know, it's, it's, it's still going on to a degree here. Uh, the, the more educated fraudsters stateside, We've got this thing that's synthetic fraud, where you basically invent a, a ghost I love it. person. Shimmering as well. Oh, yeah. Called, isn't Shimmering, it? Yeah, exactly. It's so cool. And, you know, they go in and they, they, they can pick up five phones. That's the first stop is the phone provider. They go in, they pick up five of the Samsung Note 10s, the new S20 that's coming out, something like mm. that. And they're all unlocked. And then they sell them on Craigslist or whatever you guys have got over there that's, that's, kind of supplanting craigslist right now. see the only other pro see the problem is as well as even if you block the phone i think that's why iphones fraud wires are not so popular because the iphone lock feature exactly but exactly. um if you if they're in a different country they're not blocked because they use different bandings right. so you're fine so yeah it's um there's no incentive for anyone because of the volumes and the amounts they're playing you're right. And there's insurance you're all right. the way, and it's all factored in for. It's just, it's just crazy. Yeah, you're right. Because even even the guy who comes in with a synthetic profile, he picks up five phones at most. So that new S20 stateside here is around fourteen hundred dollars. So you're looking at roughly seven thousand dollars. No one's going to really worry about that until you see that you've got thousands of people that are committing the exact same type of crime against that phone merchant like that. Exactly. And what's the incentive for that salesperson to report that? Nothing because he's getting the sale. Exactly. <laughs> and whether it's ethical or not, you know, can you prove it? Is, exactly. there, is there any point? Why would you bother for minimum wage? You're right. Why would you bother for minimum, minimum wage? You're just trying to make a living yourself. So, and, and we're, we need to go ahead and close this out, David, but I wanted to ask you, where do you see, because again, I, I, I credit the UK as, as being far ahead of the United States in cybersecurity right now. Where do you see fraud going in the next three to five years? Um, more mobile based. 
And that's probably in regards to like emulation and replication, like through blue stacks and stuff like that. There's some of that that does happen now. There's right. just more vulnerabilities usually in the APIs of, um, or just the coding of the general um, Android app or iOS app. I think you'll see a lot more of that and kind of mal malware from mobile technology. And right. I think on the dark net sides, that's a whole different subject for a whole nother um, kind of like, yeah. Discussion. Yeah, perhaps we'll get you on, uh, on Anglerfish and we can talk about the dark net side of things. Awesome. All right. Well, David, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. And I'm honored to have you on the show. Thank you so no. much. Pleasure. Speak to you soon. Right. That's it for today's episode of the Online Fraudcast. Thank you for joining me. I hope you've learned a lot. You know, we've got so many of these topics to cover to help protect you and your company from fraud. So please subscribe to the online broadcast to be alerted to when a new episode is out. Please tell your friends and family, rate and review us wherever you can to help others find out about us so we can increase awareness and protect everyone that we possibly can. Also, we want to hear about what you love and what you don't love about the online broadcast. We need to know how to improve our show, and we need to know what topics you would like us to talk about. You can find us online at www.onlinefraudcast.com, on Facebook at The Online Fraudcast, or individually on LinkedIn. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure.